Hebrews chapter 1. This book was actually the last book series that I taught at Lighthouse Baptist Church over 20 years ago. And I never finished it. I was actually in Hebrews chapter 13. I just finished um, those who were in prison, being bound with them. And um, a church named Faith Memorial Baptist Church issued me a call that interrupted my series. You interrupted my series. And um, having accepted that call, then we needed to stop the series and I needed to begin one to help prepare the church as they may transition to uh, their new pastor. Uh, Fortunately, they didn't have to wait too long. Um, They actually voted on him while I was there. And uh, about four weeks later, he began his ministry there. And he stayed there for 20 years uh, there. And so... um, so it was a blessing. So I kind of, in the back of my mind, would like to finish this series one day. <clears throat> but in Hebrews chapter 1, I want to bring to our attention <clears throat> the excellency of God speaking to us in the New Testament in His Son. And so I want to read Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days hath spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, And He, that is the Son, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. As you can tell, as the writer of the book of Hebrews enters into this book, you already get the sense that he's going to take as his theme the excellency of the Son of God. And he's going to show, as it were, the superiority of Christianity. That is, the superiority of the Son above Judaism, in fact, above all other religions. The writer of this book is concerned because having some days gone by, there were those within the congregation of whom he is writing to that was drifting back away from Christ to Judaism. And folks, the attraction of rituals And the attraction of shadows and types is very attractive to us as fallen human beings. We like those rituals. As is well known today, if you look at the Roman Catholic Church and you look at the ritualism and the idolatries and all that is going on there, there's an attractiveness to our flesh concerning that. 
And so the writer of this book immediately goes in to show not only the consequences of drawing back, which is perdition, but it's also giving a warning in order to boost or to edify us that the things that we are following are so. That they are genuine and that they are true. Modern day understanding of this book has come within the last 20 or so years, has come to see this book as a sermon. If you go to Hebrews chapter 13, you'll see that the writer says in verse 22, he says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. And the word bear does have a nuance of listen. And so the understanding of this is that this sermon, this exhortation, would have been read to the congregation. Bear with this word of exhortation, of which he says, I have written to you what? Briefly. In other words, this exhortation, this sermon is briefly given to you concerning this great theme. And if this is a sermon, and I do believe that it is a sermon of exhortation, then really it becomes a solid pattern for us in how we ought to be preaching in the New Testament times. And one of the things that is fascinating about this sermon is that really it is a whole sermon that is centered around the exposition of certain Old Testament passages. So he'll actually bring up an Old Testament passage and he'll take a portion of that and he'll exposit it and make application. He'll take another portion of that, he'll exposit that in context and give the applications and he'll just go through verse after verse after verse after verse. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, just to give you a taste of this, there are seven citations of the Old Testament just in the first chapter. That is instructive, isn't it? So evidently, in New Testament times, the congregations were centered around the exposition of Old Testament passages. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament canon complete at that time. The exposition of Old Testament passages that show the risen Christ, His work, His function, and the understanding of those passages. In fact, if we extend out and ask ourselves, as I did this morning, I pulled a book off my shelf that gives Old Testament quotations and allusions in the New Testament. And I looked under the book of Hebrews, and I had to count them. There were so many of them. In the book of Hebrews, there are somewhere near, depending on how you count the quotations and the allusions, there are some 60. Did you hear that? 60 allusions and quotations to your Old Testament. That's a lot, isn't it? All within one message. The other thing that is interesting about the book of Hebrews is that if it is a sermon, then it does give to us an indication 
on perhaps the length of messages that were given in that day. If you were to read out loud this message, and remember in that day they would have read the message out loud, right? They would have read it out loud, and then they would have expounded on a certain portion of it in exhortation. If you read this sermon out loud, according to, I got a little, you know, like an Alexander Scorby of the New, uh, New American Standard. If you read this out loud, it is a 43-minute read. So if you're talking about, if you're going to make any extrapolations for that, what would it take to do an exposition what were they commonly used to when perhaps a New Testament congregation came together? It was somewhere around a 45-minute word of exhortation from the Old Testament, right? And exposited those Old Testament passages in light of the coming of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, that's a little bit more than 15 minutes that the world tells you to preach today, right? But it also lets us know that perhaps what we're doing as a New Testament assembly and other New Testament assemblies that give themselves to expounding the New Testament, that a 45-minute message or maybe even a 50-minute message is not something that was out of the normal for the early church. What we have here in this book is a book that makes it very, very clear certain themes. It definitely tells us concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, doesn't it? We see that immediately when we read this. God, after He spoke long ago, <clears throat> verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in His what? In His Son. So this book clearly <clears throat> corrects and rebukes anybody that would deny the importance and the significance and the teaching of the Trinity. It also <clears throat> would rebuke and correct anyone's improper understanding of the humanity of Jesus Christ. This book is all about the work of of the man, Christ Jesus. For he is our high what? He's our high priest. And he gave himself as that sacrifice, and the Son of God, the incarnate Son, as a man, is now literally and existing forever at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That is not imaginary. That is a real thing. If you were to go to heaven, you would look at the throne, you would see Him. He is alive. And folks, we're very, very thankful that He's alive. Because nobody goes to heaven. Nobody. Without a high priest. Nobody. And He is our what? He is our high priest. He is the one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He is our high priest.
Now, very, very briefly, just for perhaps curiosity's sake, there's <clears throat> been much speculation about who authored the book of Hebrews. The traditional view <clears throat> that has been handed down is that who wrote it? Paul wrote it. But if we look in early church history, we will find that even though that tradition was brought down, in fact, Clement of Alexandria in the years around 175 A.D. So that's very, very early, isn't it? John wrote the book of Revelation, 90 to 100 A.D. So very, very early, Clement of Alexandria says... <clears throat> that the book of Hebrews was originally written in the Hebrew language. And that Luke actually carefully translated it into Greek, which is what we have, and what we translated into English. But he says that Paul wrote it, but he naturally did not affix his name or title to the book, lest... This is what he says. Less Jewish people who had prejudice against the apostle would not read it. Now we have nothing in our New Testament that would back up that statement. But this is what how he speculated with this epistle. The Christian historian Eusebius in the years 260 to 339 B.C., which is about 100 years after this, wrote that men of old have handed down the book of Hebrews as being the work of Paul. But then he says this, who wrote the epistle God only knows for certain. And I think that's a lot more honesty with the history that that. it certainly could have been Paul it doesn't have Paul's literary uh, stamp on it like it doesn't start off with grace and peace be unto you it doesn't have those types of things it just starts out like a sermon would start out like you would read a text and get up and begin a sermon What is going on here is twofold. First of all, Nero had just begun his persecution of believers. And you remember Nero was a very ruthless, ruthless man. He would actually take Christian people who would not deny the Lord and he would wrap them up in in fabric and he would place them on a pole and he would light that fabric and use the burning of believers as light for his parties. I would call that ruthless, wouldn't you? But at this point, at the book of Hebrews, nobody had given their life yet. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, you've not yet resisted unto into blood, but the persecution was starting. Many of them had had all their goods and their homes taken away from them but they had not yet lost their life. So you had that intense persecution, and when persecution of that intensity occurs, it causes us to question. And folks, we're living in a day not where we've lost our homes or our goods, but we are living in a day of what seems to be, unless the Lord intervenes, what seems to be in our nation a rising oppression 
against genuine born-again believers. And it does make us sit back, and there's nothing wrong with this question, but it makes us sit back and say, now, is what I believe really so? Because if it really is so, then it might cost me something, right? And so that question comes into our minds. And that question can be used by the evil one to draw us away, of which God says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Or that question could cause us, if we are genuinely converted, would cause us to be strengthened in our faith. And that's exactly what the writer of this book is trying to do to these Hebrew believers who profess Christ. But there was also something else that was going on, and that is Christianity was a rock of stumbling to Jewish people. They did not believe that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. And that's still a stumbling block to Jewish people today. And it was a stumbling block that a Messiah, that God would actually send a Messiah and allow wicked, ungodly, Gentile people to put him to death. And that still is a stumbling block. If you talk to a committed Jew today, that still is a stumbling block. My wife had a chance, even in America, to talk to one. And when she brought up that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the only way, truth, and the life, nobody goes to the Father but by Him. Uh, I'll just put it this way. She got an earful on why that was not right. This is a living, real book for us. And folks, what the writer of this book is going to communicate to us is that God has done something in these last days. Someone may say, are we living in the last days? Well, the book says in verse 2 that we are living in the last days. The last days are not coming. We, they are what? Here. They are here. <clears throat> and what he is telling to us is this. In these last days, we as Christian people, we as believers in Christ Jesus the Lord, have been given a better means of revelation than the Old Testament saints. So let's look at it right here. And you may want to just make little lines in your Bible, and I think this will jump out to you. you got verses 1 and 2. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. So you have a contrast. Everybody see the contrast? What we have here is this, God speaking, verse 1, long ago. And I have a little dot above that with a line that goes down to verse 2 when it says, in these last days, God has spoken. Everybody see that? He spoke long ago, right? And in these last days, He has what? He has spoken. So there you see a contrast there between those two phrases. 
I also show here in this verse a contrast between verses 1 and 2 by who he spoke to. You'll see in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago, to who? To the fathers. Do you see that? Now look at verse 2. In these last days has spoken to who? Us. And that includes the writer of this book. So God's speaking to us today, and God spoke long ago to the fathers. Now look at verse 1 again, we'll see another contrast. He spoke long ago to the fathers in who? In the prophets. Everybody see that? But in these last days, God has spoken to us not in the prophets, but in who? In the Son. Everybody see that? And folks, I think right away it's easy to see, is it not, that the Son is infinitely superior to a prophet. Everybody see that? And so we see the means, what we come to understand is the means of how God spoke in the Old Testament and the means by which God has spoken to us in the New Testament. There's a contrast here. Now folks, I'm going to make a statement here that I don't want you to take to an extreme. But if God has spoken to us by better means, not through prophets, but by who? The Son. Then the New Testament in this way has a certain preeminence over the Old Testament. Now are both of them the Word of God? Yes, but it has a preeminence in the means of the revelation. Sometimes we copy certain doctrinal statements that say, you know, we believe that the Bible, <clears throat> the whole Bible, is our rule for faith and what? And practice. But the truth is, is that really the New Testament is our rule for faith and practice. Why would I say that? Well, we're not giving sacrifices, are we? We're not going to Jerusalem, are we? We're not engaging in certain shadows and types, are we? We're not, we're not doing any of that. We're not saying the Old Testament's not the Word of God. We're not saying that there's not benefit from that. We're not even saying it's not equal in the sense that God spoke the Old Testament, God spoke the what? God spoke the new. But we are saying this, because there has been better means of revelation, and among other reasons, there is a certain preeminence of the New Testament for us in these last days. And I think that's critical to help us understand our Bible. Right? For instance, in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, every one of those Ten Commandments are repeated in the New. 
except one. Which one's not repeated in the new? Sabbath. To remember the Sabbath day. What day was that? Saturday. It was Saturday. But if we go to the New Testament, what we find as a fulfillment of Psalm 118 is a day that the Lord has made. That we're to be glad and rejoice in it. And we have, not by commandment, but we have by illustration. In our New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, when John says, I was in the Spirit on what day? The Lord's Day. A day uniquely owned by Him. What made that day uniquely owned by Him? The resurrection. Everybody see that? So we're we're looking to get our church order, not from the Old Testament. We're looking to get church practice, not from the Old Testament. We're looking to get our faith and practice and how we order things from what section? From the New Testament. Again, that doesn't mean the Old Testament isn't helpful. It doesn't mean that there's no edification to it. Rightly understood, we rejoice in the fact that our Old Testament foretold the coming Messiah. That we can see God's Word coming to pass in Christ, in the New Testament. We can see the fulfillment of of Isaiah, for example, in many shapes, fashions, and forms in the New Testament. We see all of these things, and it is an encouragement for us. But the New Testament is what really defines. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, why, why are you giving yourself, Pastor, to preaching through every book in the New Testament? You don't really do a lot of book preaching in the old. Well, I only have one life. <laughs> right? And I have to give a preeminence to something. And so that something has to be what's written down in my New Testament. Now, we do preach from the Old Testament. We do dip into the Old Testament. But I can't imagine how long it would take me to preach through the two-thirds of my Bible, which is the Old Testament. It would take me more than a lifetime, for sure. The best way to do that is to listen to J. Vernon McGee go through the Bible in five years. That's the best way to do that. So we have a better means of revelation. And note how... That revelation in the prophets came to the fathers. Look at verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, and that's the emphasis, in the prophets, right? how did God speak? In many portions and in many what? In many ways. Everybody see that? Now folks, what that means is this. God the Father, through the prophets, spoke to the fathers at different points in human history. And we can see that, right? And when He spoke, He spoke by 
portions to those fathers in the prophets. And what do we mean by portions? Folks, God did not give all 66 books of our Bible all at one time, did He? That Old Testament was given to us portion by portion by portion. We had the first portion was penned through a prophet named Moses. It's called today the Torah. And that Torah only consists of the first what? The first five books of your Old Testament. Now folks, just think about it. Think all you had was the first five books of your Bible. And there's a lot about God in there, isn't there? But think about all that you know having all the revelation given. Think about all you know that wasn't known to Abraham. Or even Adam. Or Enoch who walked with God and was not. In other words, as God gave to us the revelation and spoke bit by bit, portion by portion, at different points in human history to the fathers, He spoke to them through the prophets who conveyed those words. And folks, when He spoke in those prophets, He communicated that speaking through multiple means. He used a donkey one time, right? But commonly, He spoke to them through narrative. When you read the Old Testament, you're not like reading the book of Romans, right? You're reading story, narrative. You're reading history on how God worked in human history, selectively pointing out certain things in human history that are significant that God wanted us to know about Him and wanted us to know about the coming Messiah. It was bit by bit, portion by portion. Even to Adam and Eve, they knew that the promised seed of the Deliverer was going to be through which gender? The woman. Now, I, they probably had questions when they had that revelation. Then Isaiah comes along and we find out that it's just not any woman but what kind of woman? A virgin would bring forth a child. Isn't that additional revelation? Doesn't that give us additional understanding? The answer to that is yes. We get into the minor prophets and we find out the city where he was to be born, which was Bethlehem. But folks, that was a thousand years. Bit by bit by bit and portion by portion, God spoke to those prophets 
by prediction or prophecy. He, pre- he spoke to them by narrative. Sometimes he spoke to them symbolically. I mean, they would see something and the Lord would say, what do you see? And they would say, well, I see a pot. And it's facing away from the north. And God might say, well, what do you think that means? And the prophet would say, I don't know. You know. And then God would say, well, out of the north is going to come Babylon. It was spoken by symbolic things. Sometimes it came through dreams. Joseph had a dream, right? He interpreted dreams. All of these things in which God through various means and in various ways to the prophets spoke to our fathers in that Old Testament. In other words, folks, what we know about our Bible, this is very important for you to understand, is that it is progressive in its revelational nature. In other words, it starts out very narrow, the things that we know about the coming Messiah, right? And as we go, we know more and more and more and more and more and more until we get the birth of Jesus Christ. And folks, you have to understand that because you can read things, say, the book of Genesis, and you may read things in light of that and then find out later on in your Old Testament, oh, that's what that means. Right? Why did God prohibit them from eating certain foods, but He doesn't prohibit us from eating certain foods? Right? Here's God revealing things bit by bit and portion by portion, and we call that progressive revelation. And folks, it came through a fullness of time. And in that fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Now think about that. God's not going to speak through a prophet. He's not going to speak through a donkey. He's not going to speak through dreams. He's going to speak through His what? Through His Son. So you see the contrast here in verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken. Now let's just pause right here. Spoken. What verb tense is that? Very important. Folks, God has spoken, and what has been spoken is continually in effect. But He doesn't say this. In the last days, God is still speaking. In other words, He's not saying new what? New revelation. There are multitudes of Christian people who believe that they get new revelation from God. There are false teachers out there who get up and say, thus saith the Lord, like an Old Testament prophet, and give prophecies or predict certain things. 
or try to. And it is deceitful. God has spoken. And folks, He spoke in these last days in His Son. And what the writer of this book is going to do is he's going to show you and begin to show you the excellency of that means of revelation that God used to speak to us. Because, folks, here's the truth of the matter. Jesus Christ did not come merely to deliver a message to us. Jesus Christ is the message to us. Do you see the difference in what I'm saying? In other words, those Old Testament prophets, they delivered a what? They delivered a message. But they were sinful people. Right? Was Moses a sinful man? Was David a sinful man? David isn't the message. Moses isn't the message. But in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, and His Son did deliver the message. In fact, He said, everything I say is the Word of God to you. But He Himself is the message of who God is. In fact, John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, that He came into this world and that He is the exegesis of God. So if you want to know what God's like, what do you do? You open your Bible and look at Him. He's the message and the messenger and the high priest. He is the more excellent means by which God has spoken to us. And folks, that is instructive for us because that means that when you're talking about a man who subjectively believes that he has been called to be a pastor, teacher, or an evangelist, and a local New Testament church sees those giftedness of teaching and exhortation, and they commission him to do that, and he becomes a pastor-teacher over a local New Testament church, he's not to come up with his own message. The message and the messenger have already been what? Given. He is to take what has already been given and proclaim what's already been proclaimed. Everybody see that? He doesn't invent things. He doesn't mold his own message in the sense of coming up with something that's relevant and something psychologically helpful, sprinkle a few Bible verses on it. No, he's called to preach and proclaim what God has already proclaimed in His Son in these last days. Because that's how God has spoken. 
He has spoken in His Son. Now look at verse 2 again. To who? To us. To us. There's no other higher revelation than the Son. There's no greater means of revelation than the Son. There's no greater understanding of who God is than looking at the Son of God. And folks, here's how we look at Him. We look in the Gospels, the four books of the Gospel, we look in those four books and we see those books laying down by inspiration the person of the Son, don't we? We learn of His birth. We learn of His lineage. We learn of what He did, everything He did, so that it might be confirmed that He is the incarnate Son. He's the promised one. We see His life. We see His ministry. We hear His teaching. We also see His persecution. We see His death, don't we? We see His agony in the garden. We see His crucifixion. We look at how He responded. Like a sheep going before its shearers is dumb. So He opened not His mouth. That's instructive, isn't it? We look at Him on that cross. We look at Him saying, It is finished. We look at Him bowing His head in worship. We look at Him surrendering the Holy Spirit, His his own Spirit, back to God the Father. We see Him taken down from that cross. We remember His words. In three days, He would rise again. What do we see on the third day? He rose again. Then we see Him 40 days and 40 nights communicating the things concerning the kingdom of God. He's communicating the message, isn't He? Because He's the message. It's all about Him. Those four books and the portion of Acts tell us all about the Son. But that's not all we have in the New Testament. We have the epistles. Right? What do those epistles do for us? The epistles explain the Son. It explains things that Jesus said that those disciples, those early apostles, had no comprehension of what He meant by, but nodded their head yes, sometimes like congregations do when there's preaching going on. I mean, folks, He said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Did those disciples really understand one new man, Jew and Gentile coming together, Gentiles being grafted? Did they understand that? No, they didn't understand that. But the epistles teach us what that meant. Everybody with me? So you got the first four books of the Bible, they tell us who the Son is. They show us, as it were, His selected biography. The epistles explain the Son. So if I want to know what proper church order is, where would I go? I would go to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, right? Titus. And then we have one book, and it's the book of Revelation. 
And that book shows us the future of the Son. Remember how it starts? The revelation of Jesus Christ that He must show to His servants of the things that are to come. Everybody hear that? And folks, I can't think of a more beautiful way to lay out our Bibles than God has laid it out progressively for us that has been kept from Genesis all the way through Malachi foretelling all these things and then we come into the New Testament and we have the fullness of the Son seen in a selective biography. We have His teaching and we have His message in the person of Him. He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He's exegeting the Father. And then we go into the epistles and they explain those statements. And in some cases, we actually have new revelation. Right? And that new revelation, you remember what Paul said? He said to the church at Thessalonians, this I'm saying to you by the word of the Lord. All right, who taught him this? The risen Son. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Don't you love that new revelation? Or the new, the mystery being made known. And then we turn to the book of Revelation and we see the future. In other words, folks, if I have something telling me of the person of the Son and I have a collection of books that are explaining the Son and what He said and I have a book that's telling me some things presently about those seven churches and in the church age and I have a whole future ahead of me, I don't need anything else. Right? You've got the whole progressive nature of the Old Testament all coming to the point of the revelation of the incarnate Son. I have it being explained, selected biography. I mean, being told his selected biography. I have it explained in the epistles, and I have my future. It is complete. God has spoken in his Son. And folks, God has many things in Him that are unknown to mere human beings. But He has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. Peter said that. You and I are not missing anything until the day that we see Him. And folks, whether you're talking about, look at verses 1 and 2, whether you're talking about the means of Old Testament revelation or whether you're talking about the means of New Testament revelation, both of those testaments have the same origin. God. Everybody see that first word? God after He spoke long ago God in these last days has spoken. There's no dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the same source, one God, one creator of all. The testaments are harmonious. 
There's nothing in conflict between the Old Testament and the New Testament rightly understood. And that's amazing because it took 2,000 years of revelation to give this our 66 books of the Bible. So folks, can we be sure about this? That what we have in our hands is the complete Word of God. If you and I want to hear God today, open your Bible. Right? Open your Bible. You say, well, I want to hear God. I want to go off in a mountain somewhere, get on top of a mountain, some apex, so I get close to God and kind of meditate and get in myself. I just want to hear God. Unless you're hearing Him through the Scripture, you're not what? You're not hearing. Everything in our lives, our instruction, our correction, our being rebuked, our being chastened and brought up and growing up into Him, our understanding, our illumination, all of it, is by the Holy Spirit, through the pages of the Bible, plus nothing, minus nothing, with an emphasis of the New Testament in our understanding. Now, if you keep those things in your heart, it's going to save you from a lot of error. And it's going to help you understand certain things that may have been prohibited in the Old Testament, but may be permitted in the New, or may be prohibited in the New, but was permitted in the Old. People really get mixed up with that. And folks, the means of that better revelation is because of who the Son is. Look at verses 2 and 3. In these last days, God, understood, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He, that is God, appointed heir of all things. Through the Son also God made the world, and the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of the Son's power, when he has made purific- when the son has made purification of sins the son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high everybody see that he's just going to give us seven exalted characteristics of this incarnate son and folks this means that you of some necessity to some degree, have to believe in the Trinity. Folks, the Trinity permeates our whole New Testament. Jesus spoke of it. He understood it. He communicated it. It was hard for the early apostles to grab hold of it. Remember when Philip said, show us the Father, and it would be okay. And Jesus said, Philip, 
Have I been around you so long and you don't understand that he who has seen me has seen the Father? I mean, how could you make a statement like that? The Son is the ultimate means of speaking to man because of who he is. An understanding of this Trinity is unavoidable. Because these seven characteristics have not been true of any other created being ever. Whether they are in heaven or whether they are on earth or whether they are under the earth. This is the uniqueness of the incarnate Son of God in whom God has spoken to us. First of all, He is the heir of all things. <clears throat> Folks, what does that mean? Well, it means this, that this incarnate Son is the one who's going to receive everything. Someone may ask, well, what do I get? Nothing. Nothing. The Son gets how much? Everything. He's inherited all the promises that God has promised by God. He is the one who was appointed by God to receive these promises. And that's why when you read in Revelation, you see all of creation giving the glory to the Son. To Him belong all honor, all glory, everything belongs to who? It belongs to Him. And folks, the only way that we get in the ball game, as it were, is by us being organically unioned in Him. And He has graciously graciously, voluntarily loved us by sharing this with us as believers. He gets how much? All of it. But folks, He's not like the dictators and the governments of this world. He says, I have chosen to make believing people in Me co-heirs of it all. But folks, it's important to understand, first of all, He gets it all. All the promises of God in Him are yes and amen to the glory of God. Not only that, but verse 2, through whom also He made the world, or He made the ages. God, through the Son, created the ages, or the segments of, of human history. He, as it were, if you want to define it this way, He's the one that created the time period that we might call the Iron Age. He's the one that created what we might call the Computer Age. He's the one that created what we might call the Informational Age. He's the one that's created the machine age, you know, where all the industrial things came to mass produce all that we have today. 
He's the one that's made all the segments of human history, including the segment of history that we're living in. He's the one God, through the Son, has framed in human history. Nothing that is happening today surprises the one who framed it. It's going exactly in the direction that he is directing it. Isn't that a comfort? When you read the newspaper and everybody's up in arms and we're all occupying our minds with this and we say, why is this happening and why is this happening? It's the Son of God framing in human history. And that's important for us as believers because later on he's going to say, because God has done this, then you and I, any believer in any segment of human history, any believer in Christ will be given the grace to live through that framework of time. That's a great promise. He made the ages. He is Lord of all. Thirdly, verse 3, He is the radiance of His glory. The word radiance refers to the outshining of God. The supreme beauties of all of God's perfections and goodness radiate through who? Christ, Christ, the Son of God. That's part of the message that we are to understand. It's part of that goodness in which God spoke of him three times. This is my son in whom I am. I am well pleased. Isaiah says, speaking of the son who's called the servant, God the Father says, I will give my glory to no one else but to him. He is the brightness of the glory of God. And what John sees in measure in Revelation chapter 1, he looks on the face of this one of whom he hears, and he looks on that face, and what he sees is a countenance like the sun shining in its strength. And it closes that book by saying that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will need be no sun, for the glory the brightness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be the light thereof, of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is also, verse 3, the exact representation of His nature. Some writers write it this way. The King James says, He is the express image of His person. We could word it this way that the Son, of whom God has spoken through, right? God spoke in His Son not only message, but He Himself is speaking to us. That that Son is the very representation, He's the very engraving of the very essence of God. In other words, He is God in human flesh. And that's exactly what John chapter 1 says, right? In the beginning was God. And He came unto His own. 
and His own what? Did not receive Him. And brethren, I just want to exhort you today, do not reject Him. If you rejected Moses, was he a sinful man? But did he speak revelation from God? Spoken by angels. Mediated to him by angels. That word of God came to him indirectly. But if you disobeyed that word, you were condemned. You were put to death. And he was a sinful man. All right, what if the word is coming from a person who's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God who is the exact representation of who God is? How do you think we ought to respond to that? Hebrews 2, by giving more attention to what he has said. Everybody see that? Not only that, but the Son of God, verse 3, is the upholder of all things by the word of His power. The word upholding here just doesn't refer to like, you know, Atlas holding up the world. He is doing that. It refers to the Son carrying forward all things to its appointed conclusion. Is the world going somewhere? It is going somewhere. And it is going exactly to the conclusion that God the Father has purposed in His Son. And God, through His Son, and by His Son, and in His Son, is upholding all things, carrying forward all things to that appointed end. And folks, how does He do it? By the Word of His power. And I've said this before, scientists are all looking around for the God particle. What is, what is, what is the bottom line particle that is upholding and sustaining and energizing the universe? They'll never find it. It's not a particle. It is a word spoken by the Son of God, the one of whom God has spoken to us in these last days. That word that he spoke is upholding and carrying all things forward to his appointed end. And folks, it's the same word, it's that same powerful word that God spoke to us in his Son. It's amazing. And folks, it is that Son, verse 3, who made purification of our sins. The Son alone purified His people from their sins. Did you hear that? Alone He purified us from our sins. Any help from you? Does He need any help now? He alone did this. And He did it 2,000 years ago by Himself on the cross 
when He absorbed the wrath of God the Father on our behalf, accomplished everything at that moment, now through whom the power of God in the body, in the church, is to be exhibited. For we ourselves have been created in Him. And folks, when He did all that, He sat down on the right hand of God. Look at what it says. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. What? Is that some kind of faulted, perverted pride that He would just strut into the throne room of God and sit down at that right hand? Folks, the only one who was ever appointed to be king of all creation, whether seen or unseen, is God. And God took on human flesh in the person of His Son. And this Jesus, who is the brightness of His glory, who is the express representation of the very essence of God, through whom He has created all the segments of human time, who has created all things, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, of whom everything is being carried forward, so at the end of the day, to Him be the glory forever and ever. This one, very God, of God, set down on the right hand, denoting that He and He alone has the authority as a man to have all honor and majesty to Him forever and ever. It's amazing. And folks, all of that is in agreement with the Psalms when it says that He has been elevated God made man a little lower than the angels for a little while. And we don't see all things in subjection under man, do we? You wish everything was submissive to you. But it's not. But we do see Jesus. Was He a man? Made a little lower than the angels crowned with suffering and death so that He and He alone would be the captain of our salvation. We see that psalm fulfilled in Him. And folks, if we're in Him, we will be above the angelic beings one day. Remember what Ephesians says? You are seated right now in heavenly places in who? And there's going to have to be a mass transformation of you and me before we're qualified to exert any of that authority under King Jesus. Folks, no Jewish priest ever sat down when he did his duties in the temple. There's no seats in the temple. He was always what? He was always busy, working, laboring. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies 
If he tried to sit on that mercy seat, he would die. But we see Jesus. And so folks, what we know is this, that God has spoken to us. This ought to be a great encouragement to us. Not only in who He is, but in what we're doing this morning. God spoke to us in His Son. He did not speak to us through any mere created being. He didn't do it through a sinful prophet. He didn't do it through a created angel. That's how Moses got his revelation. No, He has spoken to us by more than a prophet and more than just an angel. He has spoken to us by the one who created the prophet and who created the angel. He has spoken to us in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and how long? Forever. Folks, He is the one of whom all mankind has to do. He's the one that we're answerable to. His life, His words, His promises, His future have been fully and completely given to us in our New Testament. Folks, now you can understand when it says that those Old Testament prophets longed to know the time when all this was going to happen. You know the time. You have the completed revelation. How much more we're accountable to grow in the grace and knowledge of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed.